Uh, but as we talk about learning to love like Jesus loved, that's kind of a motto. But if you stretch that out a little further into what grassroots uh, has at its heart, uh, as, as its heartbeat, um, the, the larger phrase that kind of holds us together as a mission is that we want to cover the earth with the selfless love of Jesus. You'll, you'll hear me saying that oftentimes. And, um, you know, we've been meditating on the core of that mission, the selfless love of Jesus, for a few months now, asking, what is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, and uh, how can we describe it in action? So in the coming months, uh, I'm, we're, we're going to continue this, this larger maybe year-long kind of exploration about selfless love, what it looks like, how it works in our life. Um, and in the coming months, just so you know where we're heading with all of this, uh, I wanted to do two really practical kind of sermon series, one on parenting and our relationships with our parents. What, what uh, does the selfless love of Jesus look like very practically in our parenting relationships? And then we'll do another one on marriages and intimate relationships. What does selfless love of Jesus look like in, in those kinds of relationships? So we're heading in that direction, and it'll be really practical. But there's something that we have to do first before we get there. There's a little bit of work that we have to do to get our minds around uh, those relationships because those, those closest relationships that we have are the space, the situations that God puts us in to shape our love. And uh, we have to know what we'll to be looking for, for there. So basically what we're going to do in the next couple weeks is ask the question, how does God shape love in us? What does that feel like? Where, does, where can we look for him doing that? How do we add and join in, and, 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 uh, join in the process rather than resisting it? And these are the kind of questions that I'm going to, to begin asking. And as I was thinking about this, trying to rack my brain about where I see the, the greatest metaphor of this in my life, um, I think of this picture. The next picture. This is such a lie. Look at that. This is, there's lies in this picture all over the place. I think it's an advertisement for a little pad that you can put your, your, your baby on. That baby is far too big to be like um, sitting still. <laughs> you know what I mean? How many people in here are in a situation in life where they're currently changing diapers? Few folks, few folks. I'm in that situation currently. And it's been, I, I had a, 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 my wife and I had a baby about a year ago. And we're in that phase of, and, and we, you know, we, we have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. And so I thought I was done with diapers. Uh, but we're back in the phase. And... Uh, our 14 or 15-month-year-old now is in that space where he will not sit still. I'm just trying to, like, change him. You know, like, Ethan, Ethan you know, he's my son. He'll, he'll lay on the table, and he'll be distracted by everything around him and just writhing and wriggling all about. You know, there's, there's the curtain that's there. He wants to pull in the curtain, and then he pulls the curtain away and touches the blinds. And I'm like, you're going to cut your little fingers, guy. Like, don't touch it. So I've got to, like, hold him down so the poop doesn't get everywhere and pull up the blinds and get the curtains out of the way. And still, and the worst part, the worst of it all, is when he's got a diaper rash and it hurts him. 
And he knows that to get a diaper change is going to be some pain. And so I get him uh, up on, um, well, actually, you can just say the words now, time for a diaper change. And his face just contorts and runs in the opposite direction. I chase him, I grab him, okay, let's go. And I get him up and he's all over the place. And, you know, you open it up and, oh, this is raw in there. And I can see why, but I just, and sometimes you can't even wipe him because it hurts so much. So you got to go put him in the bath and do this kind of thing and up and down and get it all off and... You didn't know you were going to hear such vivid details about diapers today, did you? And then you put on the medication and the ointment, and at the end, he's just like running off half naked. You know, and it's like, it's a beautiful thing, but he hates the process right now of diaper changes. And if I can think of um, one metaphor to think of uh, God working to shape our love and us working with him, it's probably like this, because there is a lot of crap, right, in our life. And sometimes we can get quite raw because of it, right? Um, and, um, and he's working to clean us and to, sh- and to, and to heal us. And oftentimes we can uh, fight him so hard in that process because we're not quite sure what he's up to or what it feels like. And uh, I think all of us, to one degree or another, but to a pretty big degree, all of us want to be people who can love well. All of us want to be people who can show love to others, even the worst among us, And the reason why I believe this is because if you think about it, love is the DNA of creation. It's how it's all held together. Uh, Selfless, self-giving love. And so the worst among us uh, cannot avoid, like magnets, as Mao is saying, we cannot avoid the powers that would shape us into people who love other people. And yet love is not inevitable, is it? We can go for a long time and be selfish people. We know people that have lived a long life and they are still very selfish. And not, it's not that love is not just inevitable, um, but actually it takes a significant amount of work by God uh, to really shape us into selfless lovers. And so I don't know why I'm disabled here today. Um, if we can uh, get that working, that'd be great. You guys can troubleshoot back there. I'll just point to you when the uh, slides go, because um, there's quite a few slides today. Um, But here's the thing, like we're not going to be able to grow up in love if we are in denial about the purity of our love. And by that I mean if we walk around thinking that we're great selfless lovers and we're really not, we can be in denial about that and we don't think that there's anything wrong. We don't think that that we're in need. Uh, The next slide here, we won't be able to grow up in love until we recognize the extent that God is willing to go to purify us. And by that I mean he is willing to do some really dramatic and challenging things in order to clean us off and to heal us and some things that we would never choose to go through. Now, I've got to pause right here and um, just give you the caveat that's really important. We don't believe as Christians that God creates evil. We don't believe that he brings brokenness or anything like that into the world, but he's allowed it. He's allowed the world to be like this as it is. And so while he never creates evil, while he never creates uh, brokenness in the world, he always puts himself right in the middle of that brokenness and uses it for good. That's part of his wisdom and his power. And so we recognize that God is willing to let his people go through a heck of a lot of pain in order to be shaped into love. And so we're not going to grow up into that until we recognize that. Uh, next, we won't be able to grow up in love until we learn to recognize his purifying work in our lives and go with the flow. He's at work always in our situations. 
in our, in our lives to shape us into people who know how to love. And we've got to go with the flow. We can't kick against it. We can't be distracted. We even, as painful as it is sometimes, we've got to understand that his work is for our good. And so we've been kind of working on these things in the last few months as a church, and especially the first point about being in denial. Um, because the kind of love that he's after is so challenging. And in case you've missed the series of sermons up to this point, it's okay. They're all online if you're interested. But I'm going to catch you up just a little bit to get us back up to speed here. Uh, when Jesus says, I love you, this is part of what we worked on. What does he mean? What is the kind of love he's after? When he says, I love you, he's saying, I will pour out myself for you. I'm not your slave, but I am your servant. I will stay calm when you treat me as a child. I will humble myself. That's the kind of love he gives us, and that's the kind of love he expects us to give him and others. Um, so what does the selfless love of Jesus look like? It looks like Jesus healing the ill in a crowd of 5,000 people just when he was needing space to retreat and grieve after he heard about the death of his cousin. He was needing some time away, and instead of that, he wrapped a towel, so to speak, around his waist and healed a huge crowd of people. Uh, the selfless love of Jesus is absent of self-righteousness, it delights in being treated like a child. It's not self-exalting, not self-serving. And it comes to us in this phrase. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the core of his teaching to his disciples. This is what the process of love is about. So in relationships, uh, next slide. In relationships, this means that it shapes us into people who are grateful, who are vulnerable to one another, not just kind of closed off, uh, and vulnerable even in conflict. Uh, it teaches us to give and forgive, and Jesus' teaching gets as hard as it gets. Forgive those who are your enemies. This is a huge kind of ask, isn't it, for his followers? Uh, next slide. Um, this kind of love, this the selfless love, helps us and leads us into God's presence. It reminds us that we are a treasure of his, that his love is an outstanding kind of love. And as, as we are formed into lovers, we figure out what it is to open ourselves up, to let ourselves be touched by God. And we've talked a little bit about this, Copeland culture. This kind of love that I'm describing is so different than the kind of love that is everywhere around us, in tabloids, in movies, in TV shows, and everything you can imagine is coming at us with this Copeland kind of culture, which teaches us that unless we're in a romantic relationship that there's something wrong with us, which is a complete lie. But also, if we're in an intimate relationship and it's not completely defined by infatuation, then there's something wrong with us. So uh, the kind of love that, that uh, Jesus wants from us is so different than what we know. And if this all seems too much and we think, well, we're humans, aren't we, after all? Like, surely God can't ask us to figure this kind of love out. It's too difficult um, we remember the final prayer that Jesus has to pray in John 17. The final recorded prayer of Jesus' earthly life is this. May the love you have for me, Father, be in them. And you realize that the pure, perfect love of the Heavenly Father is what Jesus wants in us. It's the total absence of using other people. And, uh, and there's a lot here, isn't there? Uh, the work of the cleaning us and shaping us and, and bringing us into this kind of space. Must, God, God is always at work, and it's some of, I'm sure, his hardest work. Um, but how do we do this? 
how does it work? How does he actually shape us? What does it feel like? Uh, how can we kind of lean into it rather than kick hard against it? And so for the next three weeks, this is what I'm teaching about. Um, and as, as I prepared this message and I think about the next couple of weeks, this is where I'm going to say, I think some of you may, may experience these sermons like uh, a bit of a fire hose. Like, uh, I'm, you may not have thought this way before, that, that love is like a process, that love is something to be formed in us. And I'm going to give you a lot. We, we're going to enter into the, uh, the, the sermon series on parenting and marriages, and it's going to be really practical, and there's going to be lots of like, good action points. But these next three sermons aren't that. Uh, because until we really understand how God forms us into shapeless lovers, until we understand what the changing experience is like, um, we, we won't really uh, know how to lean into it. So um, I'm going to kind of try to go slow. I'm going to bring you, but I'm not going to sort of um, water this down for anyone, so to speak. I'm just going to give you the, the robust New Testament biblical teaching on the shaping and formation of love. And so I'll probably repeat myself a little bit. Um, next couple sermon series, there is some progression in it, but I'm going to be going pretty slow. And I feel a bit nervous about this because in some ways, like the ways that I've learned to go with the flow of God's shaping hand of, 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 uh, in my life of love has really profoundly changed the whole way that I treat most of my relationships and how I've lived into my situations. And it's not something that I, I've heard taught. It's something that I, I studied the scriptures. I studied spiritual formation and I figured out, oh, okay, so love is like uh, a baptism. Love is like being washed like in a baptism. And so um, I'm not going to hold anything back. And I think that's what Matt was talking about with the sort of PhD, Keith. I'm going to give you some, a lot of stuff here and um, I hope it hits well. But I guarantee that if you can get your minds and hearts around the ideas of baptism and love in the New Testament, this will really, really change everything. So when it comes to the formation of love, the New Testament gives us one word to hold on to. This is word baptism. So some of you may know that Jesus was baptized. He was plunged under the waters of the River Jordan by his cousin John. And so we get a sense that baptism is like uh, an initiation ritual or something that people do to be part of a, a church. You know, if you've been around grassroots long enough, you know that we do baptisms here every, every year and sometimes twice a year in which we go out to Trowbridge or if it's too cold, we bring in our big trough and we dunk people and we welcome them into the family of God. And when we talk about baptism, the ritual of baptism, that's what we're talking about. But baptism, as we know it, isn't just a family initiation ritual, it points to something. It's symbolic of something that's much deeper. And we know this because when Jesus walked his earth, the earth, he was baptized by John, but then he talked to his disciples about he had still yet to undergo a baptism. You see this in Luke 12, 50. I have come to bring fire on this earth, the Holy Spirit, the cleansing, purifying fire. I've come to bring it and how I wish it were already kindled but I have a baptism to undergo. And by that, he means walking all the way to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be killed brutally, to undergo suffering and pain, and to be raised from the dead. He, that's his baptism. So you see, baptism is the initiation ritual, but it is pointing to something that Jesus understood as a long uh, journey of suffering. 
So uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, who lived after Jesus, uh, took up this idea. And when he's writing about baptism in Romans 6, he's not talking there about being dunked under water. He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does it mean to be baptized into his death? It means that when we were plunged under the water, this is symbolic for the fact that we are now going to go through a whole life in which uh, baptism is washing over us. And that baptism looks like deny yourself, take up your crosses, and follow me. And what Paul is saying, he's going to say in Romans 6, is the only way to life, the only way to escape the powers of death that's at work in our life and ultimately that, we'll, that we will die from, the only way to escape that is through the baptism of following Jesus, and that's where resurrection comes. So basically, my whole point today is just to help us get our minds around this idea that baptism for us is an initiation ritual, but it also points to something. And when we think about the question of how is God at work in our life shaping us, we come back to this answer, baptism. And it's bigger than the symbolic ritual. Um, and so the first place, we've got to dive into some scripture here in more detail. So the first place we come to this teaching is when Jesus was baptized by John. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, so this is going to be the story in Luke chapter 3 of Jesus' baptism, and Luke, the gospel writer, is trying to frame this up in the political framework of the day. So there are, there are politicians and rulers of, of power in this world, he's saying, um, Next slide. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and Luke is saying, okay, the political situation is complex. There are lots of people vying for power. And his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the ruler of Abilene, and Luke is saying it's going to get really complicated. This is a complicated world that Jesus lives in. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, now there's lots of religious leaders and they're trying to get there uh, in, in, into the mix as well. The word of God came to who? The word of God didn't come to any of these strong, powerful people. The word of God came to John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And just as a little footnote, some of you have heard me teach on the word of God before. This word of God isn't a, a, a written down scripture or, the, or a, a piece of writing came to John. The word of God is a way of saying the personality of God, the mind of God. God himself showed up to John and is going to commission John to do something. He's going to say, John, you live in the wilderness. You know you've got a purpose, a bigger purpose in this world. I'm going to ask you to dunk a bunch of people in the River Jordan and can you imagine that? God comes to you and asks, Don't, you may not understand this, but I want you to go out to a river and whoever comes to you, you're going to forgive them of their sins and dunk them, under, dunk them under the water. So the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. So it's going to help us a little bit just to dig into who John was if we're going to understand all of this. And so a little bit of a, a background. I can't, I can't do the whole, here's John the Baptist because he shows up quite a bit. And there's so much to talk about, but it's important that we know a little bit about John. And so uh, good readers of the Gospels know that John is not just this little minor figure who shows up at the beginning. He shows up at the beginning and in the middle, and Jesus carries on uh, his name to the very end of his own ministry. 
We know that John lived in the bush, if you can say it that way. He had disciples that followed him out there. Think of, I don't know, I was out hiking yesterday with a buddy uh, at the, um, um, at the, um, where were, we? where were we? We were out in the bush. Uh, I was, I, basically, we were, we were bushwhacking, and uh, we, were, um, we, were, we were out in the woods trying not to get eaten by wolves. Um, and can you imagine going out there and just living there and having a bunch of disciples follow you? Uh, we know he, 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 he did this, but he had this encounter with Jesus um, at the River Jordan. And um, I was going to make this joke about it being Pigeon River because there was a deception, but never mind. Um, I'm now off, off my game a bit. Um, so John has this encounter with Jesus at the Jordan River. And it was a profound experience. And um, we know that because of John's ministry, he's going to be put in prison. Uh, but he also uh, preached. He was, he was a preacher. And when he preached, he had this message for people. And it's important for us to listen to what John had to say. Here's the word that was put on John's heart. He says, don't begin to say to yourself that we have Abraham as our father. For God can draw up children of Abraham from stones. Like, don't think of yourself as a good follower of God, as someone who can, uh, you know, who, who's, who's great because of your heritage, because you grew up as a Jew, because you grew up as a religious person. Don't think of yourself just because of that as a child of God. God can make children out of stones. And isn't it true that um, so many of us have hearts of stone, <laughs> if, we, if we're really honest with ourselves, hearts of stone that are so hard to work, so hard to shape, but God can do it. No matter how hard our hearts are, no matter what we've been through, no matter how much pain we're in, God can take a heart and make it new. The axe is at the roots of the trees, John says. Every tree that does not produce good fruit, God will cut down. So you see, he's talking about fruit here and producing good fruit. And he's talking about repentance. And when, he, when people ask him, tell us what it means to, to repent. Is it just to, to go and to ask for forgiveness? John's going to say, share your clothes. Share your food and don't intimidate people. <laughs> That's what repentance looks like. Being a person of God, being someone who's after God's own heart looks like being shaped into people who know how to give and share radically. Uh, John tells the, the people who came to him, I'm going to baptize you with water. Okay, this is going to be symbolic. But afterwards, someone stronger than me is coming. And he knew from that moment, and the people knew that someone much stronger than John was coming after him. And John says, I'm not even worthy to tie, the, tie his shoelaces. That's how strong he is. So he went around the, the river Jordan proclaiming this baptism of repentance. And that's what this, this, this phrase really means. Um, he went to the region of Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you, you know, basically what we'll do in the coming weeks is take apart each of these words. Like, what is... What is baptism? Okay, I've already told us that we think about it as a ritual, but it's more than that. It's more than dressing a kid up in a little, you know, a dress and putting water over them. Uh, what's repentance? Repentance, what is that about? How does that work? Forgiveness of sins, what is this like? And I'm pointing us to these, this, these ideas as the centerpiece, the center answer to the question, how does God shape love in us? And the first thing, that, the first thing that's really important to notice here is that um, John's work of forgiveness of sins wasn't about therapy. 
Like he, he plunged them under the water, okay? So here, here's, here's the point. Therapy is really good. I, I see a therapist once a month. I've got some places in my, my emotions and my spirit that have been broken and that are fragile and that need a lot of support. And I go to, I go to a therapist for support. But those of you who've uh, partaken in therapy know that it never gets to the bottom of things. It's only always just strategies to cope, to cope in the midst of broken situations. That's what therapy is about, ultimately, is, okay, the situation is broken. How are you going to cope? How are you going to function? That's good. It's really helpful, and some of us really need it. But people weren't coming out to John the Baptist to get therapy. It's not as if he was sitting on the therapy log, and you, you all line up, and you come one by one, and he's gonna, you're going to tell him all the things you've done wrong, he's going to say, by the Father, by the power invested in me, I forgive you. That's not what John was doing. Um, you go out to John, he's going to dunk you under some water. <laughs> and so here's the thing. Um, we know by our own experience that there are things about us that cannot just change. That as, as strong and wise as we are, if we try to change them, they just don't change. Now, what is this in your life? Think of some destructive habit or uh, behavior that you can't quite kick or a pattern of thinking, or things you obsess on that you shouldn't obsess on. Uh, sin, the nature of sin involves your mistakes. Yes, that's true. But it's much bigger than that. And you can see this um, really clearly when uh, the Apostle Paul is preaching or is telling people what God called him to do. Different character. Um, Paul is, is going to talk about his own conversion experience when he was blinded, and if you remember that or not. Uh, he says, Jesus came to me and said, stand up on your feet, Paul. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And here it is. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in faith by me. Look at, look at this. Interesting. This is a robust biblical definition of sin. He's not talking about mistakes or failure, failures, is he? People make mistakes. They have problems. It's not, it's not what the scriptures are talking about when it talks about sin. When, when you, the scriptures are talking about sin, it's about this propensity to darkness. I'm sending you to open their eyes. It's a, we, our eyes are closed and we have a propensity to do dark things and to dwell in dark places. It's like a magnet into darkness. And from the power of Satan to God. Now there are other forces at work, bigger forces that are trying to coerce you to do things. Paul talks about this in, in Romans. I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. There are powers of darkness. The power of Satan that is at work in your life, trying to uh, pull you away from God and so that they can receive the forgiveness of sins. What is the forgiveness of sins but an opening of your eyes and a sh complete shifting of your heart so that you're drawn to light rather than darkness and a complete freedom from powers of, of evil in the world? That's the forgiveness of sins. So again, if you're going to ask the question, how does God shape love in our life? We have to understand that sin and the solution to sin are so different sometimes than we think. Uh, 
open our eyes, turn us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And see what happens here is when we receive forgiveness, when we receive forgiveness uh, for being this way and in a way that we just sort of gravitate to because we're broken, we're going to become and get a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You're going to be part of a community of people who are on the same journey of holiness and learning to love. So when Christianity asks us about the way out of sin and the growing up of love, it's through a certain kind of washing. There's a solution to this. God understands just how broken we are and just how much of a propensity we have to brokenness. And so he's come up with a solution and it's a washing. Um, we talked recently uh, over the... Over the Advent season and Christmas about letting God touch us. That God is amazingly uh, powerful in love. That we are a treasure of his. And that once we understand these things, we open our lives to let him touch us. Because we don't like to be touched by someone who we don't trust. Or who we think uh, we, 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 uh, we, we have false motives. We let God touch us. But here's the thing. When God touches us, sometimes we don't like it because he is going about day in and day out the process of healing us. Now, sometimes it almost feels like he's trying to kill us. We go through so much and it's like, are you trying to kill me, God? But we have to remember that sin, what is sin like? Sin is like an alien uh, being. It's like sin is like an alien, uh, 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 what's the word, a parasite who comes into us. This is what the scriptures teach us. Sin comes into us and infects us and gets into every pore of our being. And the only way to kill this leech upon us is, is to, to drown it. And so when we go through baptism, the image is this. God is plunging us under the water to forgive us of sin. And sin is a wound, it's a disease, and it does sort of make us do bad things and we do, it gives us a propensity to darkness. We, are, we have problems. <laughs> um, but when God looks at the sin in our life, he looks at this alien, we were not created to be like this, this alien kind of creature that has worked its way through all of our pores. And he says, I'm gonna kill this thing. How am I going to do it? The only way I can do it is I can, I'm going to hold it underwater. These are metaphors, right? I'm going to hold it underwater, and I'm going to drown it. And it's going to gasp for breath. And it's going to want to come up to breathe and live its life, its sinful life, and work its sin in you. But I'm going to hold you down. And as I hold you under the water, I'm going to suffocate it. And the, the, these sins are going to die. And you're going to come up out of this water, a new creation, a new person. But he knows that we struggle, right? We struggle in our brains and our brokenness to distinguish between our own life and the life of sin that is in us. So when he holds us down and we feel like we're drowning, it's because he's drowning the sin and, and we think, how am I going to breathe underwater? How am I going to live? God, it feels like I'm just dying here. That's what baptism is. That's what we're talking about. When God gets his good hands upon us, he drowns the sin out of us. 
and teaches us, if we let him, that we can breathe underwater. We can breathe under the waters of baptism. We don't have to come up. We can let the sin in us um, drown. Now, sometimes when I talk about people who are, two people who are getting baptized, I say, okay, look, I'm going to dunk you under the water, but there's something deeper that's going to happen. I'm going to put you under these waters, but you're not going to come up until you're resurrected after you die. You're going to be in your baptism for the rest of your life. And sometimes it's not going to feel great. And if you've got to come up and take a breath, okay, we all do. But don't get out of the waters. Um, baptism for the forgiveness of sins is how God shapes our love. It's a washing that feels like drowning. And when I bring this out of metaphor and into our life, into our literal lives, what this looks like is that God is willing to take us through many situations and allows us to go through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt in order to shape us into selfless lovers. And it's gonna feel like we're drowning. When he's working on, on some sin in your life and he's purifying your love, it's gonna feel like you're drowning. And when we get into parenting, you see how this is gonna apply. <laughs> And when we get into intimate relationships, we're going to see how this is going to apply. We've got to learn what it feels like to be shaped into selfless lovers, and we've got to go with it. Go with the flow, so to speak, right? And um, I'm going to get into this a little more next week, because there's so much around this. And I know this may be new for some of you, or you're just like, okay, this is a lot to take in. And I know, I know that. Um, so I'm going to kind of continue opening our minds to this whole biblical teaching. And... Um, but the main point today, what I'm in inviting you to think about is the fact that uh, sin in our life is like a disease. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, it's our bad choices, it's our failures, but it goes so much deeper. And God wants to free us uh, from this, this um, disease. And the baptism is the way that he does it. Um, because, like, okay, so there's this... Uh, um, writer, John of the Cross, this medieval writer, who's like the best. I mean, it's difficult stuff. It's not easy. It's like reading an anatomy textbook. Um, uh, but amazing. Like if you read his stuff, this, like, this is what he's talking about. This is, this is where he goes with the, some of the stuff. And he's got this little part, this little writing called the sayings of light and love. And there's so much about what I'm talking about here. Like do not refuse to be corrected by everyone. Listen to every challenge with a calm temperament. Think that God is the one speaking. How many people love to be corrected? What John is saying is, there's a way you can experience correction that you'll allow yourself to work with God who's using that ignorant person in your life <laughs> to purify you. Um, how else can we do that unless we have a, a sense that this could be a moment that God is working on rather than railing against people who don't understand us? Or like this next one, take little notice of who is with you or who is against you. Do you like that? Like, do you, how many people, okay, don't raise your hands. How many, I'll raise my hand. How many people obsess on like who's out to get them? <laughs> I got a little paranoia going on, anyone else? Take little notice of who's with you or against you. Stop building your sides. And try always to please God. Ask him that his will be done in you. Love him intensely as he deserves to be loved. These are sayings that help us get uh, at the idea of God using all of our situations and our experiences to shape us. 
or this one, allow yourself to be subjected and despised and you will be perfect. Are there people in your life that despise you? John is saying, let, let them despise you and you will become perfect in love. How can we use our situations and our experiences to shape us into selfless lovers? Uh, last one, have great love for trials and think of them as but a small way of pleasing your bridegroom who did not hesitate to die for you. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced going through a trial and finding such great peace in it because you're so thankful that you're connecting yourself up to a little piece of what Jesus has done for you. I've gotten through a few trials only because I allowed myself to think this way. And at the end of it, God had shaped me and molded me. So when we're talking about baptism, yes, initiation ritual, uh, but it's going to point to something deeper. And when John the Baptist comes, he comes as a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And this is what the prophecy was about. John is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see what that's talking about? That's talking about the, the rough places in your life being made smooth. It's talking about the things, the great deficits in your life being filled up so that they're not deficits. It's talking about the great pride in our lives, which would make us think that we're so much and humbling us. This is the preparation for Jesus, who's going to ask us to follow him. And when his followers said to him, Jesus, will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, are you sure about that? Are you sure you are going to open yourselves up to the, the denial and the crosses that will follow? And his answers to those disciples were, I mean, the inherent answer is no. You cannot be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But when the Holy Spirit comes, which we'll talk about in two weeks' time, when the Holy Spirit comes and gives us power and strength, you will be able to do this. You will be able to give yourself to the purifying love of God in your life. Now, I wonder, I wonder what this would mean for you this week to think about this. Um, what are the things in your life that you know are just so deeply seated that, that you don't have the strength or power to change them? God wants to change it. He wants to transform it and make it new. What are the things that uh, you've um, obsessed on for so many years of your life? God wants to take your attention and put it back on him. And he's willing to do a heck of a lot and to lead us through a heck of a lot if only we could recognize it and join in and let him do his work. So more on this to come. I'm going to continue unpacking this from a different angle next week. And then finally, uh, we'll talk about a little more practicalities in the third week about what this means in our life. But I invite you, friends, to think about what God's intention is for you. And maybe we have a couple more songs here and a communion. And this could be a chance for you to uh, express whatever it is that's on your heart to him. You might say, you know, God, uh, you've, you've brought me through a trial and I've hated it and I've, I've kicked and screamed the whole way. I'm going to stop. Or you might say, God, I don't understand what you're asking of me. Tell me. I'm open to you and he'll speak to you. 
Whatever it is, this is a good chance to respond to God as he's working in your life, as he's here. And part of the reason that it's so good in this moment to um, open ourselves like this is because he's walked this path before us. He knows what it means to walk a path of trial and suffering in order to uh, be perfected in love, which he did on the cross. That's what this means, that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. He's come to show us how to do this, what it looks like, and will give us the power to do it. That's why every week we come, this is so hard. It's the most difficult thing in the universe to let ourselves be shaped into love. So every week we come and remind ourselves that he's done it for us and he's with us. So we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the juice, and we eat it as a, as a simple prayer to say, God, have your way. I don't understand you always, but have your way. So whatever God is saying to you, friends, I invite you forward today to respond. Like The table here is set, and everyone is welcome.